Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, how the pandemic and last year's social justice movements continue to influence philanthropic priorities. I'll speak with Faye Tversky, newly appointed president of the Arthur Blank Family Foundation. Also, fair fight action. Depending on whom you ask, you'll get a different take on what the voter advocacy organization is all about. So we'll peel back all the layers when I talk to CEO Lauren Girl Wargo. She joins me later in the program. All those conversations coming up. But first this, the vaccine advisory panel to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Today, they will begin two days of meeting and and talking about COVID-19 vaccine. Booster shots will surely be at the top of the agenda. Now, an advocacy group for the U.S. Food and Drug Administration recently recommended the boosters, Pfizer's vaccine, to be given only to older Americans. Now, the CDC's independent vaccine advisory panel could further complicate things. We'll find out. In these two days of meetings, the advisory panel is set to hear from Pfizer about the immune response to boosters and review early data on the safety of a third dose for those who have already received them. Y'all got all that? It's not clear whether the panel will take an official vote on the boosters. Now, top Biden administration and health officials, including CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky, have signed off on the White House's booster plan pending the approval of the CDC and FDA. And in related news, Clayton County Public Schools is offering free COVID-19 vaccines and tests at all of its public schools. Superintendent Marcise Beasley said yesterday the district is offering vaccinated employees a one-time bonus. If you are fully vaccinated by September 30th and you are a full-time employee, you will be eligible for a $500 incentive. And if you are part-time, you'll be eligible for $250. Hmm. Beasley cites there have been 1,500 COVID cases in the district since school started about seven weeks ago, and about 2,400 people have had to quarantine so far. Finally, add another Democratic challenger to become Georgia's next top elections official. In a series of tweets, Michael Owens, former Cobb County Commission chair, said he's running for secretary of state because, in part, democracy is under attack. And Owens joins current state representative B. Wynn, former Fulton County Commission Chair John Eves, and former Milledgeville Mayor Floyd Griffin. Now, on the Republican side, you have U.S. Representative Jody Heiss, former Alpharetta Mayor David Belleith, and former Trulin County Probate Judge T.J. Hudson. They will all try to unseat Brad Raffersberger in the primary. Crowded field. Stay tuned. Coming up next, the changing face of philanthropic priorities. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from 
the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Now, often you'll hear me say the numbers tell the story. And 2020 was a good year for giving. According to a report spearheaded by Giving USA, Americans gave a record $471 billion to charity in 2020. And foundations also stepped up. That same report revealed foundation giving rose 15.6% to a record $88.55 billion in 2020, adjusting for inflation. Well, the main reasons they cite, the coronavirus pandemic, job losses, and racial justice. So here's a question. Will this trend continue? And also, how the aforementioned causes are influencing current, current philanthropic priorities. Well, I'm joined now by Faye Tversky. She was named the president of the Arthur Blank Family Foundation in February of this year, coming from her vice president duties at the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. Faye, welcome to the program. It's your first time. Thank you so much for us. It's great to be here. What do you make of those numbers? Americans given a record $471 billion and then foundations $88.55 billion in 2020? Well, I think it's great. I mean, I think um, both individual donors and foundations stepped up uh, in, a, in really much, much bigger ways than they had before to address the multiple crises that revealed themselves in the last few years. And uh, while there has been uh, critique, I think there's also been uh, real appreciation for the dollars flowing to both immediate needs and also long-term systemic challenges. Now, I know you just got to the Blank Family Foundation, but have you had a chance to look at how much you all gave in as it relates and continue to give to the pandemic and maybe social justice or anything dealing with the pandemic, job losses? Have you had a chance to look at those numbers? Yes, I have. Um, you know, over the 25 years of our history, uh, well before I got here, the, the Blank Family Foundation has given over $800 million to many causes, trying to really meet the needs uh, of the communities where we are. For the pandemic, uh, we gave $11.7 million to address the immediate uh, needs of the communities where we are. And that included uh, emergency uh, response needs in the areas of food, housing, uh, eviction, uh, vaccines. We were very active, as you uh, probably know, um, in, in making vaccines available and accessible to everybody uh, who, who wanted it, and even encouraging those who might be hesitant. What about in terms of social justice movements? Yeah, so we have a um, diversity, equity, and inclusion committee that got formed across the whole blank family of businesses. Um, again, this is before I got here, but mm -hmm. in response to the the racial justice uprising, really, um, after the George Floyd murder um, and many other incidents as well that uh, really importantly captured 
the nation's attention. Um, that group is doing a lot of work both across our businesses, um, but also doing grant making. So in the last uh, year, they gave $470,000 specifically for uh, uh, racial justice causes. Um, and we also did uh, some grant making to this end in Montana as well, which is a very different demographic mm -hmm. uh, than Atlanta, but we have a big, uh, a big presence in Montana as well. So when you think about the overall role that the philanthropic community has played during this, let's start with the pandemic, and we're still in this, how we would are. you, yeah, how would you assess I mean, you mentioned 11.7 million. Someone listening may say that's pretty good. Someone else may say, well, can y'all do more? Are you all assessing? Is there another aspect of this pandemic that maybe you need to address in trying to either grant some funding to or, or get involved with? Yeah, it's a great question, Rose. I mean, there's so much uh, funding flowing from the federal government through the states and so forth that it really dwarfs what we might do as a as a foundation, we still are uh, making grants to organizations that have been, you know, that, that are longstanding grantees of ours, grantee partners that have been adversely affected by the pandemic, and we want to make sure to ensure help ensure their survival. So we are still making COVID-related grants, but but the amount of funding that we or any other uh, foundation entity really have at our disposal is so dwarfed by the federal or the public funding that what we really need to do is help ensure that those funds are put to work in the most effective way possible. Then how do you all assess when it comes to the racial justice or social injustice causes and, move, and, and movements that have been happening? And let's be really clear, too, racial injustice just didn't start last year. We know that. Oh, yeah. So how are you yeah. all, what are the metrics you all are using to, to grant funding? Yeah, well, our our diversity, equity, and inclusion committee—it's an associate-led committee—and one of the things that um, Arthur's companies have always done is they've had associate-led committees that uh, drive giving across many different issue areas. So, veterans and military, youth, uh, Montana, and so forth. And and so we have this associate-led committee. They develop their own criteria for giving. What is important to that staff-led group that wants to uh, be giving? in this area and we try to support them in those in those areas. For the rest of the foundation's work though, um, as the foundation is getting ready uh, to ramp up uh, our giving, Arthur's uh, giving pleasure and he's committed to um, increasing his giving, uh, the questions around racial justice, communities that have been disproportionately affected by the issues that we're gonna be investing in further, those are questions we're gonna ask across every single issue area that we that we begin to do work in going forward. Well, and, and, and it sounds like perhaps you're not a part of this associate-led, the DEI, but at the end of the day, you have to also review, or do you review the recommendations they make in terms of what causes or where the funding goes? Is there any challenge? Oh, yeah. yeah, so is there any challenge that you see in trying to make sure that you all are, are putting your money toward those organizations or funding toward those efforts that you feel are doing some good? Yeah, we do. We review uh, those grants. Um, we have staff who, who serve as co-chair of, of that uh, DEI associate-led committee. Uh, and so we have a lot of input and we provide guidance and we review and uh, make sure that the money is getting to good organizations and help them to do diligence and so forth. One of the, the key areas of, of giving that they chose, that the committee chose to focus on was criminal justice reform. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, that's a 
a long-standing area of inequity in our society. And so uh, a lot of the funding that they chose to give had to do with criminal justice reform. Faye, let me ask you, is, is the criteria that you all have laid out for organizations when they apply for grants, did you all, would you know, and I know you just got here, so I want to be fair, but do you know if that was relaxed a little bit? Because one of the criticisms I, I hear from a lot of the smaller organizations, nonprofits, grassroots, when they go to big foundations like yours, and there are others too, not, not picking on mm-hmm. Arthur Blank Foundations, that there seems to be a little bit more, um, I guess the, the, the criteria that you all have seems to be a challenge for some of the smaller organizations who are really out here on the, on the grassroots level, you know, doing the work. Have you, did you all relax some of your criteria and, and to allow funding for some of these groups? Uh, well, we do fund uh, quite a number of small grassroots organizations. And since I have come here, we have been looking systematically at all of our systems and all of the burdens that we might in, even inadvertently uh, be putting on our grantees and trying to really streamline our processes to make them simpler, uh, to make them more relevant uh, to the organizations that we want to be supporting. It is true, as you said, Rose, that often small grassroots groups have a hard time navigating the bureaucracies of larger foundations. And so we're very mindful of that. Uh, We're listening to our grantees and we want to ensure that our systems do become uh, simpler. And uh, I would say we're not all the way there yet. We're we're working on it, though. It's a commitment that we have. And uh, we have more work to do, as do a lot of foundations, you know, having worked in a number, you know, you have to always remember, we you know what are the questions we actually need to ask, and mm-hmm. and what are those we don't want to, uh, and we don't need to, and and how can we get put money to work as fast as we can to so that communities have access um, to the to the program services advocacy that these groups are doing. Is this a game changing moment for foundations like ABF in assessing where funding goes because of the pandemic well, and everything else? Yeah, you know, we're, we are at a real inflection point, um, in part because of everything happening in the world, and in part because in response to that, Arthur uh, Blank committed to increasing his giving in a, in a significant way over the next decade, and uh, the board selected uh, three new areas of giving, and we're just now beginning to wrap our arms around what, what should our uh, funding look like, uh, in these three areas. Uh, we have a long way to go, but the three areas are um, democracy, including mm-hmm. voting rights, civic participation, and journalism, um, environment, including conservation and climate, and youth development, including helping young people who are far from opportunity attached to opportunity and economic mobility. So those are the three uh, collective, what we call collective giving areas mm-hmm. for the foundation moving forward. And um, so, so this is a, a game-changing moment for us, and, and we're very mindful of what's happening around us across all of those three areas in terms of equity across the board. And when you look at a city or region like Atlanta, which obviously is mm-hmm. changing, and we know there are equity issues here um, yeah. in this region, do you all also assess then, I'm sure you pay attention to some of the plight here that is local to the Atlanta region as well. I mean, we, we know the pandemic and, and the social justice, those are nationwide, obviously. But here yeah. in, the, in the Atlanta area, particularly with housing and particularly yeah. with with workforce development, 
those two. And and let's be really clear. You know this, Faye. I mean, there are pockets of poverty just blocks away from where I am right now. And I think you're in your office where, you know, in that region. So you all yeah. pay attention to that. We do. And uh, our commitment is to stay uh, very closely connected and focused on uh, Georgia and in particular Atlanta. So that is a, a long-standing commitment uh, that Arthur and the family have. They're always looking. Arthur is always looking for national influence, but but take care of home first. And um, and so Atlanta is really close to this foundation's heart. We have been involved in uh, funding in the West Side uh, mm-hmm. for many years. We have an enduring commitment to the West Side. Uh, I do know that the West Side is you know facing. Um, different challenges related to gentrification and uh, uh, inequality, inequal access to, to different opportunities. So our um, our work with, with young people and young adults and helping them uh, find new pathways to economic opportunity is strong. We're already working with a couple of organizations and, and hope to build out a portfolio of partners, both nonprofit partners, business partners uh, that can help um, us, uh, you know, really swing for the fences in terms of helping young people, many, many more uh, who are far from opportunity, attach to good jobs with great career pathways and much more economic mobility. The voice you hear is Faye Tversky. She's the newly named president of the Arthur Blank Family Foundation. And we're talking about philanthropic priorities uh, as it relates to what happened last year in 2020. Uh, let's talk about you for a moment. Uh, why the Arthur Blank Family Foundation. I mean, listen, William and Flora Hewlett, that's that's pretty big, too. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it is. I, I, I've been blessed to work with uh, some great uh, and large, significant uh, foundations, Hewlett Foundation, Gates Foundation. Those are big, significant global foundations. Um, so I wasn't I wasn't running away from Hewlett. It was that was a great uh, role. And I loved uh, my colleagues and our partners there and uh, got to do some great work. When this opportunity came up, there were a few things that really attracted me to it. Um, uh, you know, I would say first and foremost, uh, when everything it all comes down to it, it has to do with who are you working with and who are you working for? And uh, Arthur Blank and his family and the board uh, have the kind of values that uh, I am very aligned with. So that that is just the most important uh, thing, um, I would say. Did Arthur Blank call you personally? <laughs> I, <laughs> well, uh, I, I spoke with him personally uh, pretty early on in this, in this uh, process, yes. I have a question from a listener who wants to get your take, and it's actually one of my questions. But the listener wants to know: How do you do? You see that there is equity in philanthropic in philanthropic giving throughout the Atlanta area. You have some concerns about that. You know, I would say I don't know enough yet uh, to answer that question. Um, I, what I would say is that uh, across the nation, um, the foundations are sort of waking up. Uh, you know, they're waking up to the to the idea that we have to pay much more attention to equity. We have to pay much more attention to the historical injustices uh, that different communities have faced, in particular the African-American community, but so many uh, diverse communities that we haven't uh, attended to as carefully, as systematically as we need to. And a lot of foundations are doing their own work around 
diversity, equity, and inclusion? Who's who's staffing these uh, foundations? How do we grant our money? Who are we giving the money to? And so forth. So I, I don't know the extent to which that's all happening in Atlanta, um, but I hope to learn and be connected uh, more and more to the other local funding community here. Well, Faye, when you say that foundations are waking up, I can imagine someone listening saying, well, you know, they, they've been sleeping. It's not like it hasn't been out here in, in plain sight. And we're not asking you to, to speak for the entire philanthropic landscape, obviously. But look, these the systemic issues and challenges in society are, are not new. They've been around for more than 100 years, you know. Sure. And foundation giving is about what? Helping, correct? Mm-hmm. So you can understand someone saying, again, not picking on you, but someone saying, well, they're finally waking up. It took George Floyd and the protests for foundations, for some foundations to wake up. That doesn't surprise you. Is it because perhaps there is an equity problem within the foundations in terms of who's making the decisions and the face of the people involved in the foundations? Perhaps that's not diverse enough. I think you're absolutely right. Actually, there's a lot of uh, data to suggest that foundations aren't diverse enough in many ways. from from uh, staffing to board uh, to who are grantees that we give to, you know, who, who where is the money going? So, look, there have always been uh, foundations that have been uh, socially justice oriented, and mm-hmm. and they have always uh, paid attention. Um, but over time, you know, as people who work in foundations and giving their money away, um, as they learn more and as these uh, moments in history happen. Um, and as they wake up, they are making changes. And I think that's something to celebrate. And it continue to encourage, uh, but there is so much more diversity on boards and staff and foundation than ever before. And so I think, I think encouraging more, uh, celebrating the progress that's been made, but saying uh, that's not enough. Um, it, that's the kind of uh, the kind of stance that John Lewis would take, I think. You know, we've made some progress, but we've got a lot more way to go. And I think that that's true for the foundation world, for sure, Rose. How do you suggest then also for foundations to navigate or maneuver through when there is a a political intense atmosphere? We're coming out of one in 2020, going to be going into one later this year, November, with the local elections and, of course, 2022. Uh, how do you, as a leader, how do you make sure you all don't get caught up in that, in the politics of it? Or do you? Yeah, I mean, I think um, sometimes, uh, you know, we are a non-political and non-partisan organization. Sure. All foundations are, so, sure. uh, you know, by law. But but there are uh, moments where it's right to step up and use your voice um, and, and advocate uh, in ways uh, that are are, are perfectly not only legal, but ethical and, and moral imperatives. And, um, you know, issues around voting rights uh, and voting being a sacred right is one of them. And we uh, stepped up and used our voice uh, then uh, during the, the last um, set of uh, challenges in the state, and we will do the, the same thing going forward. So we, we intend to use all the tools in our toolbox uh, to fight for the things that are that are right um, and that we need to have in place to have a more just society going forward. And now with you uh, at, at the head here uh, with the Blank Foundation, you know, what have you been doing since February? And often when I ask this questions to CEOs and presidents, or whatever, they always say, I've been listening, Rose. 
<laughs> so I, I imagine that you're going to tell me. You've been listening to people? I've been uh, listening to a lot of people. Um, I'll tell you a couple. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, a little uh, twist on that, though. I have been listening. You know what? I, one of the things that's interesting about moving across the country in a pandemic, um, there's 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 bright sides and downsides to that. So uh, one good side is I got to know uh, so many of the people working across the blank family of businesses. You know, Arthur's businesses are are, are significant and, and complex and the people who work here really care about uh, giving back, really care about um, the role that the foundation and their, and their associate-led giving um, plays in society. So I, that was great for me to listen internally. And then um, I've been trying to meet as many uh, community uh, organizational leaders as I can. I have a lot more uh, to meet uh, as we go forward. And we've, we've brought forward um, and introduced here an, an initiative that I was involved in helping create called Listen for Good, which is a listening initiative designed to help nonprofits who serve community members um, listen to those community members. How are they experiencing nonprofit services, products, and so forth, and be able to then respond to those clients and those nonprofit participants in terms of their preferences, insights, ideas, experiences, and so forth. And so after listening, what's next for you? Do you look at a strategic plan? You don't want to change the vision because we know what the vision is or, you know, the mission, obviously. What do you, what's next after the, the listening tour? Well, the, the, as I said, the family has chosen these three new areas of collective giving. Um, we and they are at the existential air, you know, issues of our day: uh, climate, democracy, you, young people. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, we are going to be doing some learning uh, with the board about all of those issues to get ourselves smarter. And then we're going to be developing strategies in each of those areas. Um, strategies that. Uh, account for equity strategies that swing for the fences in Arthur's words in terms of really having a, a tremendous impact um, in the world uh, that is enduring and game-changing. And so when you were at William and Floor Hewlett, and obviously you mentioned the Gates Foundation too, what experience from those working with those organizations are you bringing to the Arthur Blank Family Foundation? You feel that are, are strong strong suits yeah. for you. Yeah. Great question, Rose. You know, that's what I do, Faye. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Well, what I do to that to that point is um, you know, uh, help develop strategies that are clear that are focused on solving a problem or contributing to solving a problem that's important. Um, strategies that are can be flexible and adaptable as we learn, because when you go out to to try to solve intractable problems like Hewlett did, like Gates did, like we are at Blank Foundation, uh, you're going to learn a lot along the way. And it's not just the tried and true. You're going to try some things that haven't been tried before. And we have to be flexible enough in our strategies that we can adapt and make sure that we're actively learning, being honest with ourselves and our partners so that we can continue to, to see the progress and results that we're all looking for. And finally, Faze, we wrap up. When we came into this conversation, we talked about last year. I've been asking everyone this conversation. Where do you think we're going to be maybe heading into 2022 and maybe this time next year in terms of this pandemic? You know, okay. where's your optimism lie here? Yeah. 
Well, I'm an optimist by nature. You have to be in this in this line of work. Um, I do believe that uh, lots of change is possible. So, I uh, they say optimists change the world. Pessimists are usually right. <laughs> so, but I would say that uh, that uh, this time next year, I really hope we have. Uh, the worst of the pandemic behind us. You know, I was talking with somebody from the Morehouse School of Medicine the other day, and she said, we're, we're always going to have COVID. Mm-hmm. We're, we're not going to have a world without COVID, but just like we don't have a world without the flu. But I just got my flu shot this morning. We've learned to live with that and manage uh, through through diseases of other sorts. Look, we got through the AIDS epidemic to a uh, it also revealed the fault lines of our society when it mm-hmm. when it uh, first emerged. Um, we still have AIDS with us, but not not in that extreme, uh, deadly, uh, original way. And so I think we will be um, be past the worst of it a year from now, Rose. All right, we'll bring you back, and we'll see. Faye Twersky, <laughs> president of the Arthur Blank Family Foundation. Thank you so much for taking the time. Not bad for a good uh, first conversation. You survived, huh? I did. I enjoyed it, Rose. Thank you so much. Thank you, Faye. Take care. You too. And Close Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Voter advocacy groups, national, state, and grassroots, there are a lot of them. Launched in 2018, Fair Fight Action was founded by Democratic leader Stacey Abrams right after her run for governor. Today, I announced Fair Fight, an operation that will pursue accountability and integrity of our elections in protecting our democracy. Now, depending on whom you ask, you'll get a different take on what the voter advocacy organization is all about, as well as Abrams' vision. Now, after Major League Baseball moved its all-star game from Cobb County due to the state's new voting law, Governor Brian Kemp blamed Abrams for pressuring the league. This week, we should be celebrating baseball. Instead, Stacey Abrams and the liberal mob forced the all-star game to move. Now, Fair Fight Action is in the midst of another controversy. Recently, longtime Democrat and former Atlanta City Council President Kathy Woolard was appointed Fulton County Elections Board Chair. Now, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger called the appointment blatantly political because Woolard was a lobbyist for Fair Fight Action. Time to peel back what the organization is about, at least through its current CEO, Lauren Crow Wargo, who joins me. Lauren, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Rose. Uh, question everybody gets: How you doing? We're still in this pandemic. How are you? How are you doing? <laughs> I got to start with that yeah. with everyone, pretty much. Yes, yes. Very eager for the kids' vaccine in my house. So, but we're doing okay. Let's go back a little bit because when you think back to, and I know that you, you, you've been with Stacey Abrams, you've been with the organization, but when you think back to the when Stacey Abrams made that that statement. This is who we are as Fair Fight Action. Do you think at that point, even for some, you were going to have, through their lens, a misinterpretation of what this organization was about just because it was Stacey Abrams? Did it start, you think, even then? Look, for Governor Kemp and state Republicans in Georgia who are desperate to talk about anything besides their failures on the pandemic, they're going to you know, raise Stacey's name to appeal to their base in all kinds of ways. And so just yesterday, Rose, I got the blast email from the Kemp campaign 
you know, raising money off of their taxpayer-funded lawsuit that they're prepping against the Biden administration against the vaccine mandate. And I literally opened that email, Rose, and my jaw was on the floor because that same morning I got my AJC saying that Monday of this week was the most deaths in the pandemic history in the state. 191 Georgians died of COVID on Monday. The next day, the governor's campaigns emailing about, you know, busting up a vaccine mandate. I'm like, good grief, where is the state day of mourning? How are we recognizing these folks? Like, what is the plan? So sure, you know, I am not surprised by anything these guys do to distract from their failures. You feel in fair fight action is always a good target for state Republicans and and Governor Brian Kemp when there's something they want to deflect from? Is that what you're saying? Oh, 100 percent. And Look, we we launched this organization to fight and mitigate voter suppression, and that was very successful in supporting election to President Biden in Georgia, to Warnock and Ossoff, and all of the compendium of voter suppression mitigation we did in battleground states around the country that secured a Democratic trifecta. So sure, state and national Republicans are real mad that this black woman, Stacey Abrams, and her intrepid team at Fair Fight has been so effective. And so, of course, they're going to make us the boogeyman and leverage that every which way to raise money and to try to distract from their failures. Other than the Republicans, what else, through your lens, do you think people get wrong about Fair Fight Action and your organization? Well, I don't really worry about what the Republicans say about us, Rose, because it's so much um to um, distract from their failures we are laser focused on supporting building a progressive future for georgia right now we're up on air and tv ads encouraging medicaid expansion and you know really making demands of this governor and for the whole state legislature to do right by their people and so we're we're happy to lift up the issues that georgians really care about and voting look we don't get to change if people's right to vote continues to be challenged. And we have seen over the past decade an acceleration of voter suppression um, as part of a long history in this country. And then obviously really culminating in this just horrible voter suppression bill of SB 202 uh, this year that has really shifted election administration authority, as well as you know taking some laser focus on how to uh, impact access in particular for black Georgians and voters of color. So, you know, this is this is what they do. And we we fight them every single day. Well, let's go back to then that election authority that you talked about, because this latest, if you want to call it a firestorm, centers around Kathy Woolard and her appointment, Fulton County Elections Board Chair. Um, As I mentioned, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger called the appointment blatantly political. Because Woolard was a lobbyist for fair fight action, which she was. That's true. Correct. Yeah, she was a registered lobbyist for Fair Fight. She's been a longtime progressive lobbyist for a variety of causes and issues. And what I think is so interesting (laughs) about our Secretary of State's criticism, uh, you know, we believe that the state election board takeover, that they've been given new powers in SB 202, this this Georgia bill. And the Secretary of State's power has been stripped in many ways by this bill. Mm -hmm. And this is a short-sighted, not well-reasoned, dumb, petulant, not well-thought-out bill. And why do I use those words, Rose? That's exactly what Raffensperger himself, those words, exact same words, are what he used to describe this state election board takeover provision in this very bill. Mm -hmm. Because 
it was stripping his power. It was as much about him standing up to Trump as it was about curtailing access in particular for black Georgians. And so we agree with him that (laughs) this is not well-reasoned. It's very dangerous. So he's just trying to score political points, right? Kathy Woolard was, uh, you know, is a voting rights advocate. I should say the biggest county in the state, Fulton County, and its board of commissioners would very much want a voting right advocate on their board of elections and somebody who doesn't think the state should take over the biggest county. Side note, Rose, Fulton County had the most early voting locations, had mobile voting, right? They did so much to push access. So I don't think it's a surprise that Brad Raffensperger and his Republican allies are trying to score points on the biggest Democratic by going after the biggest Democratic county on the state. And again, trying to distract from the fact that that he doesn't even like this bill. Right. But he's trying to really appeal to the MAGA folks at all costs because he's in a, in a difficult primary. Well, and speaking of the law, the, the law and the lawsuit now, I want to get into that because you all have been challenging Georgia's what you call it unconstitutional elections policies and procedures as it relates to this most recent law. Bring our listeners up to speed on where you are, because I feel like every other day there's a lawsuit being filed by somebody as it relates to either. <laughs> you are not wrong, right? I, I mean, I'm just being clear. <laughs> every other day you get an email, somebody's filing a lawsuit about something. So bring our listeners up to speed where you all are with this case. Well, thank you for that question. And to be clear, we are involved in only two pieces of litigation. One fair fight has sued True the Vote. True the Vote, as listeners may recall, tried to challenge 360,000 Georgians' right to vote in the two weeks before the Georgia runoff. The largest mass challenge disenfranchisement scam, we think, in like American history. So that's one piece of litigation. Mm-hmm. The second piece goes to your question, Rose, that in 20, late 2018, we filed a large suit that really looked at the state and state election board's responsibility to have uniformity and support for elections and their constitutional duty to protect the right to vote. And so we filed a very large lawsuit. And the update on that is it's been going through the court system. You know, COVID happened, it slowed things down last year, all the normal, but I'm really thrilled to share with you. We have made it through what's called summary judgment, that Mm -hmm. last ditch effort where the defense, which is the state in this case, tried to throw us out. And our federal judge came back and said, no, no, many of the claims in your suit are going to proceed. And so we expect that we will hear be hearing shortly from the judge on his final ruling on summary judgment and have a scheduling order to go to trial. And I would expect that we will be the first voting rights case in the country to go to trial post the Bronovich decision in the Supreme Court this year around the Arizona law. So that's coming soon, we think. You, you expect that, but as you just noted, but the, the courts have not been in on the side of, of folks like you. Uh, we've been seeing that lately. The Supreme Court, obviously, also. So you're optimistic that this will be the breakthrough that for groups like yours, this is where you all will see you have some some positive pathway here with the courts. I would not phrase it that way at all, Rose. I would say I am optimistic we will have a day in court, which going through the gauntlet in litigation with, you know, the state's lawyers um is incredible and along the way we filed emergency litigation to get people put back on the rolls due to the purge that was connected to this case we got over twenty thousand georgians restored to the rolls so it's been a long story so i am only optimistic that we will have our day in court and we will have our chance to really talk this through and we will see where it goes 
I, you know, let's be let's be real. The Republicans stole multiple Supreme Court seats. We're not optimistic on voting rights in the Supreme Court. And we also are very realistic that Kemp and Raffensperger's lawyers are going to fight this tooth and nail. That's fine. They do what they do. But why fair fight action is successful and has been successful at mitigating voter suppression is that we don't just file litigation. We organize. We do media. We do all kinds of organizing and other activities to really take a whole set of strategies and tactics to these challenges. The voice you hear is Lauren Groh-Wargo. She's CEO of Fair Fight Action. I want to go back to Brad Raffensperger, and and forgive me if you don't want to talk about him, but we have no other choice (laughs) because this is part of the conversation. Um, But recently, and again, Secretary Raffensperger said he wants to make sure that only American citizens are voting, Um, although Georgia does not have a history. He did say there were a few instances but there is no systemic history of non-citizens voting here in Georgia. But he is hoping the state legislature will pick this up and hopefully get this in terms of on the ballot for, you know, voters to vote on in an amendment, uh, change it to the state constitution. What do you make of that? Well, it's silly. It's a silly political ploy. It's already in the Georgia code that only citizens can vote in Georgia. This is another political pot shot to appeal to a very narrow MAGA faction. And again, if these guys want to waste our taxpayer dollars on frivolous litigation, like Kemp is doing on the vaccine mandate, on frivolous constitutional amendments that are unnecessary, it's their choice. If that's the political posture they want to take, when over 20,000 of Georgians have died from a disease that's preventable, we don't even have a mask mandate in schools, Rose. And we've got all these school-based COVID crises happening. We've got some of the most unequal health and income outcomes in the country. We've got rural hospitals closing, overburdened and threatened to close because our governor's too mean and too cheap to expand Medicaid. If that's if all they want to do is appeal to the MAGA faction on a bunch of political pot shots, that is absolutely their choice. But A, it's a stupid political strategy that's going to lose. And B, we're going to fight them with all of our allies and we're going to continue to work for Georgians and for communities of color and for marginalized communities across the country. So they do what they do, Rose, but this is a farcical distraction from the real issues that matter. Well, Lauren, I want to get in this too, because I think there's some confusion here. There is fair fight action and then there's fair fight. And as a listener says, and I agree with them, what is the difference? Because a lot of people see it all as one group. And the listener also says in this email here that you all are, Nonpartisan, but it appears you lean left. Can you explain that? I sure can. It's a good question. So fair, it is a good question. So how we are structured is fair fight is a PAC, and it's a PAC that has both state and federal arms. And then fair fight action is a 501c4 nonprofit organization. The primary purpose of that organization is nonpartisan. So all of our general voting rights work and our litigation our litigation, we do, our co-plaintiffs, our faith communities and others, all of that is nonpartisan work. And then 501c4s are able to do some political activity and that is progressive political activity. And then our PAC is unabashedly big D Democrat. We only endorse Democrats and we work to support pro-voter progressive candidates. So there are a lot of organizations like ours, advocacy organizations on both on both sides of the political spectrum that have different vehicles within that are allowed to do different things. And so we have a whole operation that is very thoughtful about how and where we spend money and how we are compliant. 
And that's why we're a unique organization, because we can really bring muscle to the fight of voter suppression, which sadly right now is incredibly partisan. I mean, just in August, Rose, I'm sure you I'm sure you noticed in the quiet of the August recess in Congress wasn't so quiet, right? Big infrastructure battle going on. Mm -hmm. Speaker Pelosi called the House back and they took a historic vote on the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. And for the first time in history, zero Republicans supported that civil and voting rights bill. I mean, this is unbelievable. So unfortunately, Republican Party is so. Well, why do you think that is, Lauren? Yeah, <laughs> it's well, here's why I think it is. I think Trump and all of the right wing groups spent, we estimate, at least 70 million dollars on propagating the voter fraud lie and voter suppression activities and litigation in 2020. So the 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 canard of voter fraud has been used for voter suppression since the founding of this country, right? If you go back to Jim Crow, it was about black people were not trustworthy and they, um, you know, the voter fraud narrative was used then to criminalize voting and civic activity. But up, in, uh, up until 2020, there were legal restrictions on the Republican National Committee that were lifted. And so they spent untold tens of millions of dollars and then weaponized voter fraud at a new level and they sort of, if you think about a marketplace, they created their own demand for the crappy product. They got their base so ginned up and focused on voter fraud that then when they got into state legislative session, their activists were demanding that the state legislature take action and pass all these bills ar around the country. So I think that's a big part of what's going on. And now they're pandering to it. So besides lawsuits, and, and you said you have, you know, initiatives and programs, someone listening says, okay, we hear all this, Lauren, and you've been on the program before, and you said all this. What is your strategy? What is this organization's strategy, this mission, as you called it, to stop voter suppression? What does that involve? Is it a holistic approach? It is, and it's a holistic approach that we work in concert with allies because this is a big crisis in our country. So we don't ever th think that we could do all of the things by ourselves, but we work with a broad spectrum of organizations uh, in state and nationally. And so to your question, our job is to mitigate voter suppression. And so that means in the state of Georgia, that means slowing down and stopping bad bills, right? We with our allies fought SB 202. And if you remember, Rose, the bill at the beginning, they were trying to get rid of all mail voting, Sunday voting, the bill by the end, some of the worst pieces were took out, still horrible bill. But our job is to mitigate. Right. And so we use advocacy in the legislature. We use organizing work. We mobilize our volunteers and have a whole set of strategies that we employ in this work. Y'all getting ready for the, the next legislative session? Well, we got one probably around the corner here, allegedly yeah. in November for redistricting and then back in January. So, Rose, you're going to have a full fall as other gerrymandering ensues and then they'll be back at it in, in January. Yes. Can't wait. <laughs> y'all, all y'all. Both sides, everybody, both sides, y'all keep us busy. Uh, Lauren Grohl Wargo, CEO of Fair Fight Action, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for answering the questions. Yeah, thank you, Rose. Appreciate you. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. You know what to do. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, you can 
go online because it's there, wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. And also, just for those that are wondering, we are reaching out to some Republican-led voter advocacy groups as well. So don't send me an email talking about we're being one-sided because we don't do that. If you missed even today's show, it's online, wabe.org slash Closer Look and Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.